0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Late in the afternoon of January 27, 2017, Donald Trump, guided by Stephen Miller, issued the Muslim ban. Hundreds of people had their immigration status changed in midair. They'd taken off from their home countries with permission to migrate or to visit friends or have a business meeting. They landed, essentially, as illegal immigrants. Those travelers needed, the rule of law needed, a savior. They found one in my guest today, Becca Heller. Her organization, the International Refugee Assistance Project, deployed an army of volunteer lawyers to the airports. One of them obtained a court order forbidding deportations. As Trump's court troubles grew, he essentially gave up. For a while, the good guys had won. Heller was an overnight celebrity on every nightly news show. She got a New York Times profile, a daily show appearance, and a MacArthur Genius Grant. IRAP tripled its budget in a year. Now, almost two years later, Heller has helped over 200,000 migrants and refugees stay in the United States. It would be heroic work for anyone, but especially so for someone in their mid-30s with a toddler and a pile of student loans. Where do her energy and courage come from? As it turns out, the answer is suburbia.
1: My dad was a cardiologist. My parents are both still alive. I'm using past tense just because they're retired, not because anything tragic happened. My dad was a cardiologist and my mom taught public school. Where? Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area.
0: And how many siblings?
1: I have one younger brother.
0: And what's he doing now? He's not solving the immigration problem?
1: He is, I think he's day trading is how you would describe okay, it. sure.
0: Okay, that's cool. Someone's got to do that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Someone's got to take the money that you have in your budget and invest it somewhere, right? Yeah,
1: he's not- Trading
0: our budget. He's not helping your budget.
1: <laughs> no, he's not even helping me personally. I've asked him what I should do with my money, and he says he doesn't want to be responsible if I lose it all.
0: I, I had a dear friend, of might say the same thing to me. I, I said, "What should I do in terms of a business manager to invest my money?" He goes, "What?" He goes, "What would I do, or what do I think you should do?" <laughs> How uh,
1: different were these? He, he said, "I
0: would never tell you to do what I did." He said, <laughs> "I don't want that responsibility." Uh, now, so you grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, through high school, were you an activist, or what were you doing?
1: I was like a wannabe activist. Like I had all these ideas for things all the time, and I felt sort of very empathic toward especially homelessness is a very visible um, manifestation of in social. In the Bay Area. Yeah, in the Bay Area. You know, because the weather's good, right?
0: And it's a tolerant community too. Like there's a there's a level of homelessness you just don't see on Park Avenue in the 70s. Right. And I live in the village and you see quite a bit of it because that community down is a lot more tolerant.
1: Right. And you know, we'll see if tech changes that uh for better or for right, worse. Right, right. Um but I think, you know, that was so visible, and I remember always being Being, like, really worked up by that and having these, like, big ideas of, you know, when I was 10, I was like, I'm going to do a blanket drive and then just not doing it because I think I – I don't know if I felt disempowered or I just felt scared or I didn't know my own –
0: You had the passion, but you didn't follow through.
1: Yeah, pretty – like, many people, I think. Right.
0: And, And then you go to Dartmouth. Why? Because uh, you were all saying Dartmouth is like of all the ivies, it's like the most animal house of the ivies. Is that is that fair?
1: You think I can't roll with animals? No, house? I'm
0: just I'm 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 closing my eyes. I'm thinking about you like having a blanket drive up there in in uh, in uh, Well here's uh, the
1: thing, I never did the blanket drive, right? right. I'm the person <clears> who wanted to and then went to Dartmouth instead. No, I actually I had an amazing time at Dartmouth.
0: But uh, why why Dartmouth?
1: I messed up applying to college the first time around. Um, I applied to two schools early, and one of them found out and told the other, and they both rescinded my offer of admission. And I took a year off, and I did AmeriCorps, um, which I would pinpoint as sort of like the turning point of when I realized that, oh, do I need to re-say that? Because I dropped that on the table, and it made a weird echoing sound. I
0: think people can tell right away there's going to be a very bumpy interview. (laughs) AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps.
1: It's the kind of domestic peace corps.
0: No, I know, but, but but so where did you go?
1: I, I stayed at home, uh, because they don't pay you very much. Right. So I lived with my folks and I was working at an elementary school in Berkeley on sort of broadly equal opportunity education stuff, and they just gave us this big budget and they were like, do programming to help fight institutional oppression. And I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that, but I'm gonna give it a shot. And then I think much to my surprise, it turned out there was a lot of things that, that we could do collectively. Um
0: now, when you leave school, when you leave uh, Dartmouth, you go to Yale Law School. You go right one to the other. You take another gap. Oh
1: no, it. I took I took two years. And
0: what did you do in that two years?
1: I was in Malawi for a year on a Fulbright. Right. Um, and then I actually went to Vermont for a year. Partly for a boy, partly for a job. I ended up working on the Freedom to Marry campaign in Vermont.
0: Did you find you had a kind of a peripatetic nature? You liked moving around and you weren't married at the time and you had no kids. And did you find now is the time for me to go to Malawi? For You were there for like a year, right?
1: Yeah, I was there for a year. I I still am pretty peripatetic, actually. I I get really claustrophobic if I stay in one place for too long. Um, I like to move around. I think the world is just completely fascinating. I like to see as much as possible. Does your husband share that
0: passion with you, or he's— He
1: has, like, a huge zest for life. He doesn't like long plane rides as much as I do. Right. But, yeah, he loves to travel. And I'm taking, actually, um, the day after Trump was elected, the, I, I like, couldn't really get out of bed, but I went to the Brooklyn Public Library and got my kid, who was one at the time, a passport, because just I professionally help people flee. Um, and I was like, if this all goes to shit— I'm I'm not going to not be able to get across the Canada border because she has a different last name from me. Um, but she's never actually traveled internationally. But in in January, I'm taking her and my mom to Costa Rica, which I'm really excited about. I want I want her to be equally peripatetic.
0: What was your awareness of Malawi and what was going on in Malawi before you showed up there?
1: Well, I had been in Zimbabwe on and off for the year before. But
0: um, doing what kind of work?
1: On paper, I was helping— build community gardens as a response to HIV-related malnutrition at public health clinics. But I think when you're, you know, if you're an activist and you're deep in the middle of a problem, you're always like, what's the root cause of this, right? And in Zimbabwe, the root cause of this was like the ruling party. So I ended up getting involved in some political opposition stuff um, and ended up needing to leave the country.
0: What kind of gardens? Community. community gardens uh, to address malnutrition in the HIV community. That sounds pretty benign and pretty wonderful. Would w- you land in Zimbabwe knowing that the government and the status quo needs to be addressed, or do you learn that there?
1: I landed. Are you the
0: accidental activist, or you were predisposed?
1: Both. I mean, I didn't. I would say that I landed aware of the problems because I do my homework. Mm-hmm. So, like, I landed knowing that ZANU-PF, which was the ruling party, had said no one can buy maize Meal, which is the staple food without a political party membership card, which means that, like, it doesn't matter how sick you are. In order to get food, you have to say that you're loyal to Mugara. Support us or die. Right, literally, um, or starve to death. So, like, I knew that. I didn't go in there saying, oh, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to address that, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: But eventually you couldn't help yourself.
1: I mean, I stumbled into a meeting of the— opposition party and had some feelings. Right. I mean, I think I was primed in a way that, like, I'm not afraid of a good fight on behalf of a good cause, mm-hmm. but I also I think going into some place, especially with, like, a fighting mentality, is usually like really unproductive. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think historically, America hasn't been that good at not doing that. Yeah. Um. So I didn't go in saying, like, oh, I'm going to struggle for regime change, but I went in being like, There is a problem, which is that, like, really sick people don't have access to immune-boosting foods. And this was before antiretroviral therapy was really widely available. And, you know, HIV doesn't kill you. What it does is weaken your immune system, and then you get a secondary infection that kills you. So nutrition becomes really... Important. So I had this, like, theory that I thought might work, but I went in knowing that it was just a theory and that really, like, I didn't know shit about shit. And so I was open to learning that the problem had other facets and there might be a better way to address the political cost, Yeah, political or not.
0: What kind of uh, facilities did you live in?
1: I lived with a family. I originally actually was An living African with family. a black family— because I had this weird concept of, like, solidarity that, like, oh, just because I'm privileged and have a cell phone, like, doesn't mean I should get to stay in a fancy house. Like, I should stay in the township like everybody else. And then one night, some rocks were thrown in the window, and the rocks said mzungu on them, which means, like, white person. It means go sort back of. to
0: the Embarcadero. Uh,
1: I'm from the East Bay, so I don't mess sorry, around with sorry, the Embarcadero, yeah, there but that's okay. cool. Um. It was a sort of awakening moment for me of like, oh, that's solidarity doesn't mean that I like pretend that we're the same.
0: How much longer did you last in Zimbabwe? Oh, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Yeah. And so so what happened after that?
1: I kept doing the same work, but I moved in with a white family so that I wasn't like putting people in danger with my physical presence.
0: So what is the end game there? When did you realize it was time to get out of there?
1: Well, I got what deported. Happened?
0: Like someone comes to you and says, back your things, we're going. Uh,
1: the, I got picked up by the local police and taken to a police station. And uh, they like held me in an office for seven hours. And I started out really scared. And then by the end, I just like had to pee worse than I've ever <laughs> had to pee in my life. And then they came in, and they're like, you need to leave the country. We're going to take you to the airport. And I was like, great. Can we stop by a bathroom, please? Yeah. And that was kind of—and then they, the family shipped me my stuff. Like, yeah.
0: And when you came home, what happened? What did you start doing?
1: That was when I, I got the Fulbright to go to Malawi, and then I went to Malawi for a year. And
0: what was the work in Malawi?
1: I was working for the Malawian government.
0: What did the Malawian government want you to do?
1: I was working for their Ministry of HIV, AIDS, and malnutrition, and they wanted me to write their, like, five-year— HIV, AIDS, and malnutrition policy. So related
0: work to what you did in Zimbabwe. Right?
1: Yeah. But, you know, I'm 23. I still don't know anything about these issues. They wanted someone who could write fluently in English so that they could submit proposals to the World Health Organization right. to get funding.
0: Right. And then you were there for a year? Yeah, give or take. Did you accomplish what you wanted to accomplish in Malawi?
1: No. Not remotely.
0: So when you look back on that year, how do you characterize that year? I was bored. Yeah. And, you, and you learned?
1: I don't know if I I mean, I came back opposed to foreign aid. Why? For a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, I feel like a lot of it gets lost to corruption. Sure. Two, I feel like it displaces the growth of a real middle class. I think that if, you, you know, in Malawi, for example— um, some huge amount of their GDP was in the form of foreign aid. And if, like, America keeps subsidizing farmers to grow a bunch of food we don't use and then dumps that food for free on countries like Malawi, it becomes really hard for Malawian farmers to ever grow anything right. marketable. To take care of themselves. Right. Yeah. So it just created—
0: And infantilized the culture there.
1: Yeah, and it, it prevented any real local economic growth.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so I, when you're bored, you're like, what do I do? Let's go to Yale Law School.
1: No, then I chased a boy to Vermont. Right. Because I thought I really missed Vermont, and I'd—, I'd the Marriage yeah. equality
0: thing? And you were there for how long? For a year. Right. Um, and in pursuit of helping g- gay men and women get married, did you end up getting married? to The boy you chased to Vermont, did, he, did you close that deal?
1: I did not. We—I'm married to someone else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Once that guy you chased to Vermont found that he could get married to a guy, he wouldn't married a guy.
1: Yeah, that must have been what happened. Yeah, I think it sounds Why good. else would we not be together
0: anymore? How long were you in Vermont? A year? A year. So it seems like a year is your shelf life.
1: Well, it was. In your youth. I've, are you saying I'm not in my youth anymore? No,
0: but I'm like in your pre-youth.
1: You invite me onto your podcast <laughs> your, and you tell me I'm no longer in, in my, in my in youth.
0: In your natal <laughs> stage, in your prenatal stage.
1: Yeah, when I was an embryo, nine months was my shelf yeah. life. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I did a lot of stuff for a year. I mean, I think I think most people in their early twenties should do that, like a year mm-hmm. or two. I think your twenties is a time have kind of a
0: tapas of issues. Yeah, and exactly. You and like out.
1: you don't know what floats your boat. Like yeah. try out a bunch of stuff. Like that's your. I, think I it, always tell
0: people that. I said either before you go to college, in this way of a gap year, which I just love that idea. I said don't go to college. I said take a year off and work and travel if you can. Taking just, a
1: gap year is the. I mean, I didn't do it on purpose, on but it's the best thing that ever happened oh my to me.
0: God. So then, when, when you decided to go to law school, and why?
1: I think I've always kind of known I was gonna go to law school.
0: Did you feel that that was just like a that was a a bullet you wanted in your chamber to yeah, have a law degree? I, I didn't know Comes kind of handy.
1: like which social justice issues I wanted to take on, but I felt like whatever I was working on, like at a certain point you just run up against the law and I wanted to know if a law degree was a way to kind of get over that hurdle. And I worried that it wasn't.
0: How do you describe your years in law school? Intense.
1: It was a lot. Work, 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 um, be, I mean, be, Yale's be. nice because they don't make you take any classes. So I basically just did clinics, which is where you work on cases directly. I founded IRAP in law school. Um,
0: We're going to get to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I just, I did IRAP. I did like the human rights clinic. I did the immigration clinic. I got to like depose racist cops. That was pretty fun. Uh, no, I was, In New Haven? <laughs> uh, in Danbury. In
0: Haven. How'd that go over?
1: Oh, I loved it. And we won the case.
0: Did you get deported from Connecticut? <laughs> no. Right. Okay. So, right. so uh, when you found IRAP, how does that idea come to you? How does the uh, mm. the idea of immigration is the issue that becomes your creed occur, obviously, for the last several years? How, how did that happen?
1: When I came to law school, I thought I wanted to do international human rights law. And mm. then I realized that that's mostly PR. Like, well, Why a, do you say that? When an international human rights court rules on something, it's not really binding right like they can hold that this thing that the US does is illegal and the US is free to keep doing it and what happens is there will be an article that the like yada 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 court ruled that this country is behaving illegally but usually it doesn't actually lead to anything in practice the sort of naming and shaming element of the sort of public relations nature of human rights law is really important it just didn't interest me as the thing i wanted to be doing every day because i wanted something a little toothier and so i got really interested in in asylum law because it's people who are fleeing international human rights violations and then looking for a remedy that will actually help them kind of restart their lives there's you know they've fled something really awful they've gotten to a place where they think they can be safe and they're trying to stay so it felt like a way that i could address the fallout of international human rights violations but in a way that like had concrete meaning even if it was on you know a person by person scale rather than like a nation by nation scale
0: So you decide to set it up how and where? What's the physical operation there?
1: There wasn't one for a long time. I mean, I— It's a cell phone. I don't even know if I had a cell— I guess I had a (laughs) cell phone. I didn't have an iPhone. I sort of wandered into the issue. I was doing an internship between my first and second years of law school and the NGO I was with just— sort of didn't have enough for me to do and I really hate that Mm. uh like Mm. I hate wasting my
0: time a lot of energy
1: well also you know we're all gonna die so the minutes are important
0: (laughs) see all the paintings in the museum before I die you
1: started with my childhood
0: yeah right no but I mean that's very exciting and very admirable but you've been doing this for how long now uh six years seven years
1: eight to ten depending on how you count yeah long time long time yeah, no. Your adult I mean, life. I've improved my shelf life. Yeah, uh, by an order of magnitude. Right.
0: Yeah, you're um, you're in.
1: in. I am in. Ira is the Hotel California for me. <laughs> I was, I thought I could go Star Trek or the Eagles, and I went the Eagles. I,
0: I, I I'm always down with a good Eagles. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I hate the fucking Eagles,
0: man. Do um, you really?
1: No, I was quoting the Big Lebowski. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're doing overlapping cultural references. I
1: know, I I was trying to hang.
0: Lebowski eagles, I love (laughs) it. So so when when law school ends...
1: Well, here's what happened. I am really obsessed with efficiency, going back to my mortality thing a little bit, but I also just, like, I'm not... It's not about ego for me, right? I'm not like, oh, I want to start an organization. Like, I actually really didn't. People go to law school not knowing what they want to do. And I actually went to law school wanting to be a lawyer. Like, I love the practice of law. Um, it's just like it's it mirrors how my mind works really well. And well, you gave I, that up. Yeah, I don't do that really. Right. Um Why? Because that's not—it turns out running an organization isn't about, like, doing the programming of the organization. Basically, like, I i met with these refugees in Jordan after quitting this internship in Israel, and they all just needed legal assistance. Um, They were—you know, they can't go back to Iraq because something terrible happened to them. They can't stay in Jordan because they have no status. They can't work. Their kids can't go to school. They can't get health care. They could be deported at any time. For, for
0: whatever reason, there's only one direction they can go in right. safely. Right.
1: And, and the— process of deciding sort of who gets to go in that direction and how, and then who has to, like, get on a raft across the Mediterranean or who has to go back to Syria and get killed is just incredibly legalistic, super arbitrary, really complicated and bureaucratic. So I was like, oh, you need a legal advocate. Like, this is a legal process. Your life depends on the outcome. If I were in a legal proceeding and, like, the death penalty were on the line, the thing I would want the most would be a good lawyer.
0: So, for example, to, to distill this part of it down, because I want to think about I want to, I want to get into this theoretically for a minute. Yeah. Where someone can't go back, because that means death, like I understand them getting all the help they can, but do you think that there should be limitations on immigration in this country? I mean, sure. And, and, and where do people who are typically line up on the opposite side of the issue than you, where do you think they're right?
1: I think mostly— The problem with how we conceptualize of immigration policy in this country is that we look at it in a vacuum. Right. Uh, I think you can't answer, you know, I get asked like, do you think there should be an open border? Do you think do you think we should let in as many immigrants as possible? Do you? I think it's an irrelevant question. I think as long as we're, or I think the answer is yes, as long as we continue to overthrow democratically elected governments and mm-hmm. rape countries of their natural resources such that there's no political stability or jobs, I think we shouldn't be surprised when people have to flee those places and mm-hmm. show up here mm-hmm. where all the resources have landed. Mm-hmm. So, to me, like, as long as our economic and foreign policies are what they are, it seems really hard to decouple our border policy. And you
0: think the United States is responsible? Directly. Right. Well, MS-13
1: exists because we overthrew governments and then deported people back there. MS-13 was deported from L.A. to El Salvador. I mean, it's just, you know, and for decades, like for the whole— So it's the
0: ISIS of Central America, <laughs> something we made.
1: In the sense that we made it sure. Right. Like, how many democratically elected leaders did the CIA overthrow in Central America in the 80s? Like, tons. Like, we destabilized that region. And then, prior to that, you know, with like United Fruit Company, like, sure. we created plantations, we enslaved the population, we took most of their natural resources and took them here. Like, we prevented the growth of local economies. We did everything possible over the last hundred years to destabilize to them. Yeah. And now, You know, this whole idea that like, oh, people are only coming because there's no jobs. It's like, well, the fact that there's no jobs is what leads to like drug violence, gang violence, murders, domestic violence. And that's kind of on us. We
0: we point the finger there and say it's a mess and it's a mess we made.
1: It's our mess. To a
0: large degree. Yeah. I, I don't remember immigration being this hot of an issue politically. Has it been in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Government has made
1: it a higher priority to use its power to persecute immigrants than they ever had, but I don't know that anti-immigrant sentiment is necessarily that different. I think it's being stirred up, right? I think it's more activated, but I think, you know, you go back to... You know, I I went on this kick on, on July 4th. This year, I read 1776 in an attempt to remember that, like, revolution on American soil was once possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they hated immigrants then. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the immigrants were the Irish. And then later, the immigrants were the Germans. And then they were the Italians. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, we've always hated immigrants. There's a, you know, the first ever Supreme Court case saying you can't discriminate against people based on national origin is from the end of the 19th century about Chinese immigrants. Um, who were being sort of systematically discriminated against, and the Supreme Court was like, "No, you can't, you can't do that under this Constitution." But it took the Supreme Court stepping in. To, and it didn't fix it. I, I was going to say to fix it, but it didn't fix it. Um, so, I, th- you know, and of course, like, I'm Jewish. Um, and you think about the St. Louis, which is the, you know, the ship carrying Jews fleeing the Holocaust that went from, like, port to port to port in the very beginning of World War II. And, and no one would let it dock. And eventually it had to go back to Europe. And they traced the futures of most of those people. And most of them died in Auschwitz. Um, and and America basically said, like, we would rather send these people to their death than have to admit Jews as refugees. That doesn't feel that different to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, like, is is really tragic that we can't seem to learn from our mistakes.
0: Lawyer and refugee advocate Becca Heller of the International Refugee Assistance Project. There are now more refugees in the world persecuted and unable to go home than at any time in history. Only the end of war and hunger can keep people from trying to move to safer countries. The medical charity Doctors Without Borders, known by its French acronym MSF, is on the ground wherever violence or disasters strike. Their international president, Joanne Liu, joined me on Here's the Thing and talked about her experience working in Chechnya. You are putting other people in danger. We were under attack on a regular basis, that's one thing. But the threat of being abducted was so huge. And we knew that if something were ever to happen to the MSF staff that we will pull out. So we were praying for not. It was so nerve-wracking. A lot of fear. Yeah, and I hate that because I think, oh, this is so self-centered.
1: And compared to what all those people are going through, come on, get a grip on yourself.
0: Hear the rest of that interview in our archive at heresthething.org. After the break, what really went on behind the scenes and in the spotlight after the Muslim ban came down? This is Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now more with the hero of the Trump resistance on refugee policy, Becca Heller. When did you um, realize that Trump had a viable candidacy? Were you even paying attention that I'm sure you I'm, I'm assuming you yeah, were? I was pen- and when you sit there and go, "Oh my god, he's going to take this thing." And there, there's plenty of kindling on the ground and he's squirting lighter fluid all over the floor.
1: Honestly, not until not until they called Pennsylvania. I mean, we—like, I remember, um, like, we were really excited for election night because we were like, oh, we're going to eat popcorn and, like, watch comeuppance happen and and show that, like, you can't win an election based on hate. And we, like, you know, had beer and— other things that I don't want to say on the radio, and and we put our kid to bed. It's NYC,
0: baby. You can let it rip. That's okay.
1: I mean, I'm. I don't want to get my bar membership revoked.
0: No, no, don't, yeah, don't, 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 don't do that.
1: We could let it rip in the studio, o- but just not o- off, say yeah, what we're yeah, letting rip. No, no, not on the
0: air. Yeah, don't light that in here.
1: Put that out. <clears throat> put it yeah, out. Yeah. But we I think everyone had this experience of. Just like— the t- So during
0: the campaign, you sensed he was different. You sensed he was nuts. I and mean, I knew—I was-
1: followed it really closely. Like, huh? I knew it was happening, and I was one of those people who was like, don't worry about it. Hillary's totally going to win. There's no way she doesn't. It's like, in the bag. I, I completely had my head in the sand. Like, mm-hmm. um, And I remember going to bed, waiting for them to call Wisconsin, and I woke up at like 3.30, and my husband was—
0: me too. Three o'clock, I woke up.
1: Yeah, I woke up. And, and, I passed
0: out and woke up at three. Yeah, my husband. My, my
1: husband was on his phone, and I was like, you know, did they call Wisconsin? And he was like, they called Pennsylvania.
0: I was, I, I was, my wife and I fell asleep because we got, you know, a lot of little kids. And my wife literally, like, she was, she wasn't so miserable and tired because yeah. uh, of breastfeeding the baby. And my yeah. wife just looks at me and she goes, oh, God. And then she just passed out again. Yeah,
1: no, that was the same except <clears throat> for not passing out again. I just, like, spent right. the rest of the night in sort of a series of panic attacks. But, yeah, no, I I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. And part of that is because I'm, you know, the bi-coastal elite who, like, I went from California to New England to New York. Like, apparently, I have no idea what's happening in the middle of the country.
0: Mm-hmm. January 28th, 2017. If everybody's at the airport, describe what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started the 23rd, actually. So Trump gets sworn in on the 20th. He takes the weekend off to go golfing, because wh- why would the president work on the weekends? And everyone's sort of waiting to see, like, of the various awesome things that he's promised to do during the campaign what's going to come down first. And Monday, uh, the travel ban actually leaks to us. Um, Someone takes a photograph of a desktop monitor in the White House, sends it to someone who sends it to someone who sends it to us, and it has the text of the travel ban on it, and we're like— Oh, so—and and we knew it was coming, right? Like, it was not a secret that Trump didn't want refugees coming in from Syria, and we assumed that we'd be grappling with that at some point. We didn't know that it would be, like, one of the first things to occur. So we start—we have a number of clients who have permission to enter the U.S., but who haven't left yet because it takes a long time to sort of sell everything you own, tie up all your loose—right? <laughs> to pack. Right. To, 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 to give up your entire existence. You don't existence roll it up in a and,
0: napkin like Huckleberry Finn, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, he was a lot younger and didn't have a family. Yeah. So we start calling our clients and saying, "Hurry up and get on a plane, like whatever, like take the hit on the loss of your house and and get on planes." And we got. So you're saying
0: clients. You're saying the organization had had relationships with these people yeah, who were we, seeking to get out. We
1: represent thousands of individuals. Thousands.
0: Refugees. Yeah. Thousands. How um, do they find you online?
1: Uh, a bunch of ways. We have offices in the field. We have the NGOs in the UN refer cases to us. Um, the, is, this, is this
0: why the budget is six and a half million dollars? That kind of outreach does that around the world high or low to you? It's not nothing. It's not nothing? Yeah,
1: yeah. We have four people whose full time job it is just to like reply to every inquiry we get because so many refugees just reach out to like hundreds and hundreds of people and hear nothing, and we feel like at the very least, like if you're sort of a voice crying out in the darkness, you you deserve an answer. And usually we try to also provide a helpful answer with, like, legal advice, and then we take on their legal cases mm-hmm. too. And we actually the, – the U.N. refers cases to us. That was what originally triggered me to realize I needed to do this full time was when the U.N. called my but the summer between my second and third years in law school and asked if they could refer cases to us. First, I was really flattered, and then I was just like, shit like you don't have anyone else to call like I'm not even a lawyer like someone has to do this like, mm-hmm. you know but so we had a bunch of clients and a couple dozen who had permission to enter but hadn't come yet so we reached out to all of them and we were just like get on a plane we'll we'll spot the plane tickets we got law firms to cover them and then um yeah. that Wednesday we had a transgender client flying into LAX and with transgender clients, it's always really tricky when they fly because their documentation doesn't match how they present. And usually you worry about that when they're exiting. Um, and this time, we were I was really worried about that when they entered because I was like, they might be looking for, like, any excuse to fuck with anybody coming in from one of these seven countries if the ban comes down. And so— we arranged for a lawyer to just, like, surreptitiously hang out in the arrivals area of LAX and make sure that this woman had the lawyer's contact info in case anything went wrong with her entry. And thankfully, it didn't. Um, but that night, I was G-chatting with my policy director, and she was like, oh, thank goodness the band didn't come down today. And I was like, oh, because this woman was able to make it in. And Betsy was like, yeah, and all the other people who were on her flight— And I was like, holy shit, this ban comes down. Whenever that is, there's going to be thousands of people who are in the air who had legal permission to enter the U.S. when they took off and are going to land essentially as undocumented and nobody knows what's going to happen to them. And I had spent a lot of time between November 9th and January 20th being like, what tools do we have to deploy in this upcoming war on refugees, right? And the the biggest thing we had was this army of lawyers. So we had put some thought into how can we organize that? What do we want to do with it? So I was like, we should organize lawyers to go to all the airports. So we emailed our network and organized lawyers to go to every international airport. How many lawyers? We organized 1,600, and then I don't know how many it ultimately ended up being. I mean, thousands of thousands.
0: thousands. Multiple thousands.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, and the cool thing was that, like, for the first couple of days, like, we were organizing most stuff, and then everyone started self-organizing, um, which was amazing. Um, like, I remember being at JFK, and there was this just, like, super competent guy sort of, like, assigning people tasks, and, and I hadn't slept because we were trying to file the lawsuit, which we can talk about, and... I was sort of a mess, and I, I I remember thinking I should recruit him. And I pulled him aside at one point. I was like, "Who are you? Like, what do you do?" And and he was like, "Oh, I work at McKinsey." And I was like, "Yeah, are you happy there?" He's like, "I love it." And I was like, <laughs> "All right, good to meet you. You know, next."
0: How many people did you get into the country?
1: Uh, Two thousand one hundred. Wow. wow. In partnership with other NGOs and a ton of lawyers, and you know, I mean, it wasn't have you kept
0: in touch. Have you have you kept in touch with them and monitored them and are they all still here? I have no idea. You have no
1: idea. I, I literally don't know their names. We wouldn't know the number if the ACLU hadn't sued under the Freedom of Information Act.
0: I, I guess what I'm saying is you get them here, then the rest is up to them.
1: Most of those people are coming on temporary visas. My daughter is scheduled to have a C-section. I really want to be there for her. Someone's getting married. Someone is dying. Someone There's an event. Um, not people who are want to immigrate to the United States. Uh-huh. And most of them are trying to visit family because from these seven countries, like, we're not giving out a lot of tourist visas for Yemenis to come go to Disneyland. Uh-huh. Um, right. so, so most of the visas that we're giving out, it's because you have a really compelling reason to come and some tie to the U.S. Because our, our visa program, like, was not free of sort of racial or national origin profiling before this, right? Like, IREP has a Syrian staffer, and we've been applying for a visa for her to come to New York for our all-staff retreat, like, since the Obama administration, and we can't get one for her. Why do you think? Because they don't believe that you could be Syrian and not intend to immigrate.
0: The State Department. Oh,
1: yes. The government and the various other, you know.
0: You come out the other end of this experience of the uh, uh, of the twenty seventeen uh, um, uh, airport weekend. A- a- airport. <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs>
1: That's what so I call – my mom called Chevy me – Chevy
0: Chase in Airport Weekend. No, he
1: doesn't get to be in it. Seth
0: Rogen. Seth Rogen could him. definitely play me in so, so you you have Airport Weekend, and you come out the other end of that, and, and you, you realize things have changed for you. Do you feel that they change for you personally in your, in your career, in your arc?
1: I mean, I I don't – maybe. I mean, my mom called me on Sunday, and I was going into day three of No Sleep, and she was like, how are you doing? And I was like, Mom, I'm living the first line of my obituary. Um, <laughs> But I I said it more for, like, shock value than because I actually believed it. And in retrospect, it might have been true. Um, I just wasn't thinking about it in that way.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, we came out with a ton of lawsuits on our hands. Um, talk about
0: the lawsuit you filed.
1: Right. So the, the travel ban came down. It was signed at 4.30 p.m. on Friday the 27th. And... We were tracking people coming in. So we had clients who were coming in, and one of them was a man named Hamid Darwish who had worked for U.S. forces in Iraq on a Ford operating base for 10 and a half years, which is relevant for a number of reasons, one of which is that to work on a, on a FOB you need to get a military-grade-level security clearance every six months. So Hamid had had 21 military-grade-level security checks. There had been multiple attempts on his life. He had young kids. Um, He was given this visa through a program that Senators McCain and Kennedy had created in Congress to try to protect those who had put their lives on the line to assist our military, which I think if we don't implement well, we're going to have trouble finding allies in the future. And he showed up here and he was handcuffed and locked in a room and they let out his wife and kids and they came out crying and they, we had their lawyer and their law students waiting for them. And they said, you know, Hamid is locked in a room and there's a bunch of other people in the room with them and we don't know what to do. So, um, I called a friend of mine from law school and cause I'm not a litigator. And I was like, what do we file? Um, and he was like, we need to file a habeas petition. Habeas corpus literally means like produce the, the body. body. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's. It's what says that you get, like, some amount of trial if you're held in Guantanamo. Like, the U.S. can't turn airports into a black site and detain anyone from a Muslim country who looks
0: brown. You to be charged.
1: You have to have a hearing in front of a judge. Right. And so my friend Justin Cox said, you know, we should file a, a habeas corpus lawsuit, which was brilliant. And now he works for IRAP, which only took me, like, a year and a half to effectuate. <sighs> then we called our former mentor from Yale Law School, Mike Wishney, who said, let's make it a class action which meant, like, let's file a habeas petition on behalf of anyone who might be detained by the government anywhere in the country. And then we looped in the Immigrants' Rights Project at the ACLU, the National Immigration Law Center. And then everyone stayed up all night so that we could get the thing drafted and on file by 5 o'clock in the morning because we wanted it filed before any international flights could take off because we didn't want them to be able to deport anybody. And we were granted a hearing that night in Brooklyn at 730. And Legal Galernt from the ACLU argued it. And Lee is like a ringer. Just, like, if you ever have an argument about due process and immigration and you can get Lee to argue it for you, like, you should you should definitely do that. Uh, you should make sure he's sober. Um, but if he's not, he'll <coughs> still win.
0: He likes he's, a challenge.
1: He's he, we it's called too him, easy for him. We literally called him and we were like, Lee, what are you doing right now? He's like, I'm in a bar. What's going on? We're like, we need you to go to Brooklyn and argue this case. And, I'll be right there. And he won. Yeah. Uh, and so we won at 830 and the judge said everyone has to be released. And... The, the Customs and Border Protection officials at the airport didn't believe us that we had won this court decision. So Omar Jadwat from the ACLU tweeted out a picture of the court order. So you had lawyers at airports all over the country, like, running around showing customs officials the... Photo of of Omer's Twitter feed um, on their phones. We, and, they, and they
0: obeyed that. that JFK, they obeyed that Twitter posting.
1: At, at JFK, we literally got a plane turned around on the runway. Um, they were trying to deport an Iranian Fulbright student to Ukraine, of all places, and she was on the plane and she was on the phone with us, and we were trying to decide like, should we have her stand up and make a fuss and get thrown off the plane? And then we're like, no, we shouldn't do that because she'll lose her visa if she right, does that. Like, what go to jail. Yeah.
0: But when you get the woman off the plane. When you argue the case and you win the case and he gets off the bar stool and you have the Twitter picture, this is like a great movie. Do you ever meet some of these people whose lives you've affected or lives you've changed?
1: Oh, for sure. And I'm still in touch with some of them. And we – you know, when we have events – we try to have clients come speak at the events because I think it's really important that we're not speaking for people. Um, but we also have a lot of clients who don't want to stay in touch. You know, I think a typical symptom of, of going through something really traumatic is to want to just, like, put it all behind you. And we're very tied up in that trauma. Like, we're what happened before, right? And once you're here, you don't want to deal with what happened before. Um, so some people want to stay in touch and some people don't. And I, you know, I, I don't force it.
0: Well, even for people who the immigration issue is uh, uh, something that's not in the forefront, the number one issue is the economy and their paychecks, and number two is health care. This ripping children away from from their parents changed everything. I mean, this becomes the image of the most heinous. What was your response to that? I mean, I think— Did your organization have any role in that?
1: We actually won a big lawsuit Uh, on behalf of 2,700 unaccompanied kids in Central America who are trying to reunite with a parent in the United States. But, you know, we don't have offices on the border. I mean, I took a lot of hope from that, actually, which I know is strange, but I think...
0: This is the bottom that we've hit.
1: We made it the bottom, right? It didn't go further. You know, the the thing that was amazing about Airport Weekend is that, like, we organized the lawyers, but nobody organized the protesters. Totally spontaneous. Thousands of Americans went out in freezing, shitty January weather to just be like, this is not cool. The executive order was rescinded before the lawsuit. The lawsuit we won said that they can't hold people, but the one that we won right away wasn't about sort of the legality of the order on its face. It it was the public pressure that got the administration to rescind the executive order and the so-called like chaos at the airports, which I will forever be proud of. And I the same thing happened with the family separation policy on the border. There were plenty of lawsuits about it that you know it was, the lawsuits ultimately were victorious. Congress like fucked around and didn't end up doing anything. Um what what got it to stop was just like the number of people who who stood up and said like this is not okay. The number of journalists who refused to stop reporting on it. Ultimately, it was just straight up public pressure that caused the administration to rescind the policy. And it hasn't been totally rescinded, right? They're still separating kids from families like it's not a perfect solution but as you watch like so many of the sort of systems to protect democracy and the rule of law be dismantled it does give me hope that when something that egregious happens people are still willing to stand up and say like this is un-american and that when they do it means something
0: um in your mind uh, i'm assuming that you're capable of citing a couple examples if you're willing. Are there any heroes in the Senate or the House on this issue who you think get it right about this issue?
1: Senator McCain was amazing on this issue. Mm -hmm. He was amazing on refugee issues. Why do you think that is? Because I think if you have served in the military overseas, you understand how important it is for our foreign policy to have a humanitarian component. Mm -hmm. You understand that if the U.S., wants to be taken seriously as an enforcer of national security that that can't just be a stick that that it needs to have a carrot also mm-hmm. that we need to take responsibility for sort of the the peaceful side of national security mm-hmm. issues and i i think he understood that deeply senator shaheen has been great for us on these issues um, I'm looking forward to, you know, the new Senate and the new House and seeing what we can do with them. And mm-hmm. I, hope that, I hope that there are more heroes. Of
0: the $6.5 that comprises your current budget, or roughly that, most of that money comes from where?
1: It's 50% individuals, 30% foundations, and 20% corporate. We do not take government funding.
0: Describe your relationship with the Bronfmans.
1: Substitute what? grandparents.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah. Charles. They've been very generous to you.
1: I mean, they're just l- lovely. Like, Charles is just hilarious and sassy and has me to his house and is just, like, really supportive.
0: And supports your work. I rep.
1: Yeah. But they've become family, and I don't know. Yeah. Is
0: media and savvy with social media at all important to you or not?
1: It is important. I think it's tricky right now because I think earned media doesn't have the impact that it did a couple years ago. I think um, there's so much crazy stuff happening all the time that you just when you get a story in The New York Times, it just doesn't mean what it used to mean, and mm-hmm. it doesn't stick the way it used to stick. And you also mm-hmm. you have an administration that doesn't care when the New York Times says something. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've become really interested in, and and I have a project that I've been working on for a while, um is sort of using popular culture. um and how can you, sort of, you know, like, people maybe won't read New York Times articles or won't register them, but, like, they'll binge-watch for 14 hours, like, the newest season of whatever. Um, Black Mirror, yeah. Yeah. uh, I can't watch Black Mirror because it freaks me out too much. But, um, you know, but so if you can get, like, a a narrative about—a more positive or more useful narrative about immigrants or refugees into a pop culture format— I, I think that has a lot of promise as a way to try to, you know, change hearts and minds.
0: What's next for you? Book? No. You're not interested in that? You don't have time to reflect.
1: I reflect <laughs> in a very, like, neurotic, anxious, obsessive <clears throat> way that does not lend itself well to, like, yeah. an overarching narrative.
0: Yeah. I, I th- I th- um, I th- but I think people like you get things done.
1: Yeah. I got some offers to write books, and I was like, well, when, you know, so-and-so activist wrote a book, like, how did they do it? And they're like, oh, they took book leave. And I was like— that's the last thing I'm going to do right now Let's right. just be like, oh, well, I mean, I think attention to any issue ebbs and flows, right? Like, we definitely had our 15 minutes around airport weekend. We were aware at the time that it was 15 minutes. And so we approached it really strategically and said, you know, what can we keep from this? Like, what can we hang on to that we can continue to use in the future? And, and I'm continuing to sort of take that approach of just, you know, with the MacArthur, like, that's amazing. I feel like it adds a lot of pressure on me to make sure I'm leveraging it for the work as much as possible.
0: You don't pay yourself very much money.
1: Well, now I don't have to, thankfully. Right. Thanks, MacArthur. No, I, I do okay. It's not like 30 rock money. Um... No, I I want to keep fighting this fight. I have a ton of ideas for what should be next. And the other staff at IREP has a bunch of ideas. And we've, you know, two years ago, we were a $2 million organization. So we've grown pretty fast. And we're trying to manage that growth in a way where the, you know, quality of our work is still high and our organizational culture is still good. But also we're aggressively growing to fight these problems. And, you know, so, like, where is, like— if Hillary had been elected, we would be making a big play around climate refugees because, to me, that's like the single biggest thing that we have to contend with, right? Like the first major manifestation of climate change is going to be and is already like the displacement of large numbers of people. Flooding, drought, yeah. and we have no no legal or systematic regime whatsoever to deal with that anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think I I work a little better in a bunker mentality. Like get, getting back to like pressure. I don't like pressure, but I I've. I've but process pressure. Resistance is, you know, creative resistance is a better fit for me than, like, scaling up widgets.
0: You're one of those people who are like, you know, where would the world be without you? I mean that.
1: Quieter. <laughs> Quieter.
0: That was tireless refugee activist and could have been stand-up comic Becca Heller. Her organization, once again, is the International Refugee Assistance Project at refugeerights.org. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing as a production of WNYC Studios.